welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. Thank you so much, music team, and great job. And uh, thank you for all your hard work. I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2 and find verse 12. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 is where we'll begin in just a moment. My son Michael is here today, and I'm excited that he's back in Tuscaloosa. And oftentimes people will make a comment saying, it's easy for me to see that he's your son, that you look a lot alike. And I was actually talking to his twin uh, to a man about his twin brother the other day on the phone. And I was talking to this man who's going on a mission trip with us to Ecuador that knows my other son, Forrest. And he made the con- I said, now you realize Forrest is my son. We were, he lives in Louisville, this man. We we're on the phone. And he said, I said, yeah. And he said, well, I can hear his voice. In your voice, you sound a lot alike. And he said, it's kind of freakish because you all have the same mannerisms and how you sound on the phone. And that brings me a lot of joy when people say that, you know, when people say your sons remind me of you, that brings me that, that makes my heart rich. And if you have children, you know, you can probably appreciate that it makes you it makes you feel a sense of joy in your life when people say I can see your children in you. The word Christian means little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, little Christ. And I believe it brings God joy when people say, I can see Christ in, in you. You know, to be a true born-again Christian, which is what the word Christian means, to be born again, to have had a, a second spiritual rebirth, that, that means you've made a decision that you're going to follow Christ. You know, I have decided to follow There's no turning back. I've made a commitment to look like him, to act like him, to think like him. That's what it means uh, to be in the center of God's will. And I think clearly if we reflect on who Jesus is, what Jesus looks like, what Jesus sounds like, how Jesus acts, we would come to the conclusion that Jesus is a person who regards others as more important than himself. We should therefore look like Jesus and act like Jesus and also regard others as more important than ourselves. That outlook in life to be externally focused, to be a person who in general, you know, with the majority of your life and the majority of the way you look at the world, you're trying to look at others as more important than yourself is is a worldview that clashes headlong into the American dream. It doesn't take long to, to watch television to see that the, the commercials on TV don't promote being like Christ. They promote the idea that we need to be pursuing happiness. We have the right to happiness. The pursuit of happiness means that we're going to take care of ourselves first and foremost. That's the American philosophy that clashes in a, really a, a clash of, of ideas with the, with the biblical worldview. And what God is saying to you today is, if you'll trust his word, if you'll trust and obey the word of God, then joy is going to be the result. And it's uh, really a call today to trust in God's commandments, to trust in in obedience to God's word, and to to trust that the, the, the joy of life will come. If we are obedient to God's word and we generally decide to have an outlook that's about other people rather than ourselves. So I want to encourage you this morning to just trust God and what he's saying to you. 
And the title of this sermon is Be the Church for Others. Be the Church for Others. And I'll begin reading in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The Bible gives us this command that's working out our salvation, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's kind of startling for a lot of us in here because it almost sounds like Paul is saying to us that we need to earn, or at least once we've become a follower of Christ, we need to keep our salvation by doing good works. Work out your salvation. So the question I want to start out with is, does our text mean that we are to earn our way to heaven by good works? And the answer is no. It doesn't take but a very short amount of time in reading Paul's letters to find that that is completely opposite of what he always teaches. Just a couple of pages prior to this, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, It's for by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. And I think it's very clear that salvation is impossible by good works. We don't keep our salvation either once we're saved by being obedient to the Bible. Our text I want you to understand very clearly, does not say work for your salvation. The text says work out your salvation. And already in the book of Philippians, Paul has started out the very beginning of his letter here to the people there by calling them saints, which means in Greek, the holy ones. He calls them, he says, you're holy. And believe it or not, we're all saints that are followers of Christ. We don't have to work for sainthood. And so in Philippians, Paul is teaching us that we are we cannot work for our salvation. So I want to make that first and foremost crystal clear that God has done the work for us. And if you're here today and you're trusting in your good works for salvation, the Bible teaches that you cannot get to heaven doing that. You'll spend a lifetime separated from God in a place called hell because nobody can work for their salvation. It's by grace, it's merciful grace that Christ became our sacrifice and our substitution as an offering at Calvary. And so at the point of salvation, for those of us who have made that decision to follow Christ and are not trusting in ourselves, but are trusting in what Christ did for us, at that point of salvation, there was some point, you may not have even realized it, but there was a moment when you became a follower of Christ and you became born again and you were placed in Christ. What the Bible says means that you are legally justified, just like a criminal who is guilty of crimes, that you are declared innocent. You are declared not guilty. And you are in Christ. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. And that's an incredible thing. And it's the very gratitude that we sense in our hearts when we feel that that compels us 
to want to follow him and obey him and, and say, you are my Lord and whatever you command me to do, I'll follow you. It's the awareness of our eternal life and the, gra- and the gravity of that that gives us a, an everyday gratitude. And so working out our salvation is what happens after we're born again. And the key, though, is realizing that we got to work it out. Working out your salvation means that you can't just do nothing. You can't just sit and soak. You can't be passive. You have to be intentional about it. And what God is calling for us today to do is to join him at what he's doing in your life today. To come alongside God with your will and to say, I give you my will and my heart. I submit to your leadership in my life, God, is sensing that you are working in my life and that you have things that you want me to change. And and I want to begin to work out my spiritual life, making it a priority in my life. It's not just about coming to church. It's not just about even being saved. It's about growing in Christ and becoming a true devoted follower of Christ. And it requires doing things, exercising our faith to join God and improve our spiritual health. God's will is to transform you and to get you into spiritual shape. And he does that day by day in your life, transforming you into the image of Christ. He wants you to be in shape spiritually, to be healthy spiritually. And there's things in your life today that God is saying, I want you to adjust and change and work on, and if you'll listen to the voice of God today, you, you can uh, respond to Him at the end of this service because He's going to speak to you. When I was uh, in the Air Force, they really put an emphasis on all of the, especially the officers, working out and staying in shape and being examples to the other airmen. And so they encouraged us to work out on a regular basis, and I enjoy that. And I would go to uh, work out every day at lunchtime. And at the base I was at, I noticed there were a lot of civilians at the base I was at. And so it wasn't just military. And one of the older civilians, who was probably at the time about 60, came in there every day at 12 o'clock, and he stayed until 1 o'clock, he was, and he was there every single day that I was there, this man was there. And he was really memorable because he was uh, an older man, but he wore these skin-tight pants like runners wear or ballerina wear, you know, and so it was kind of like he was startling anytime you saw this guy. And, and he wore the same outfit every day, the same exact pants, same exact workout clothes. But the thing that I noticed about this guy that was that he looked like he never worked out. And it bothered me because he worked, he was in the gym every day. And what he would, uh, you know, come in there to do, I never really paid attention to. But I just noticed that over time I was there uh, for years. I noticed over time he didn't change at all. I mean, he had... Um, Really skinny arms, and his chest was was had a weak chest, and to be honest, he had a sort of a gut on him, and had little bitty tiny legs, you know. And I, it bo- what it bothered me was, I thought, Lord, if I work out every day, am I going to, you know, it's like, am I going to be like when I get in my fifties, just like wasting my time in the gym? Maybe I need to give up working out and go find something else to do because it, it, apparently, when you get to a certain age, it doesn't help at all. 
I mean, so I really, it bothered me because I'm like, is this my future? Am I destined to, even though I work out every day, to just be a person who doesn't seem to have any kind of physical strength? And so here's what I decided one day. I said, I'm going to watch this guy's workout. And, and I wasn't trying to judge him, but I was trying to say, I want to learn what he's doing so that I can make sure when I get older, I don't do whatever he's doing. Because whatever he's working, however he's working out, it's not working and it's not making any change in him. He's not being, he's not getting into shape. So I've got to figure out what's going on here to make sure that I learn from this. So I just decided one day I'm just going to watch him and see what he does while I'm working out. And I, I was just kind of trying to stay fairly close to him and just work out around machines that I, while he was working out and just keep my eye on him. So here's what happened. He came in at 12, and he walked over to the first machine, and he adjusted it, got the weights all on that machine like he wanted to. He sat down, he stretched out a little, you know, just a little bit, sat down on the machine, and then he just started looking around. And he saw a person in, uh, close by him that he knew, and he called out their name. And he got up off the machine and went over and shook the guy's hand, and they started talking and they carried on a conversation for about 15 minutes, and then finally they um, you know, said goodbye and uh, shook hands. And then, so he went back and he went to the next machine, and he had, he adjusted that machine, and he you know sat down on it for a minute. And then the guy sitting next to him was watching the television and uh, you know news, whatever, something going on, and so. He says to the man next to him, you know, something about the news, something about politics going on. And they got up and they started ranting and raving about politics and how they were so upset about, you know, all these things going on in America on the news and how they had better ideas and they could fix everything if people would just do whatever they said. So that went on for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then they decided to, you know, say goodbye to each other. And then about that time, um, he moved on to the next machine. And you can kind of figure out. Uh, the pattern that started, uh, he would go and he'd stand by a machine and adjust it and maybe sit on it for a minute until somebody came by and then he would just talk to him. He spent an entire hour in that gymnasium and never did one exercise. He didn't lift a weight. He didn't move a muscle. He didn't do anything. And I'm telling you, this guy, he was in the gym but he was not working out. And in the same way, um, we can be in Christ and we're not working out our salvation. And instead of getting stronger and being conformed to the image of Christ, we just get weaker and weaker or we just stay the same year after year. And so we got to do what God is calling us to do and be intentional about growing in Christ if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be. Because God wants us to be the church for others, not for ourselves. He doesn't want us to be self-centered and he doesn't want us to be selfish. Because we're little Christ. We're supposed to be like our Lord. We're supposed to reflect who Christ is. So we need to learn what it means to work out our salvation in order that we would have a general outlook in life that would be Selfless, promoting others, and especially promoting unity in the church. Because this church was, in Philippi, was 
They were struggling. They were torn apart by division. That was the the main problem at Philippi was it was a divided church. It was an arguing church. It was a church that it was disputing over preference, not over theology. And it was a church that was off mission. And Paul was calling them back to being the church. He said, be the church for others. The solution was to not be self-centered, but to think of others as more important than yourself. And so today what I want to do is just start a, a walking through the rest of chapter 2. And we're only going to look at two of five ways to be the church for others. So re- really what we're looking at is how to work out your salvation. Obviously, it would be my desire that you'd come back next Sunday to hear the remaining part of these uh, points to work out your salvation. But again, I know God has got you here for a reason. And when God speaks to you today, I want you to submit to his will. And whatever he says to you, I want you to respond at the end of our service. And so we're going to look at two ways this morning that you can work out your salvation. And really, it starts in verse 12. And there's there's a typo on your note sheet. It's uh, the first point is to go back to verse 12 and 13. And I want to generally talk about or working out your salvation under these headings. And it begins with the idea of live out your salvation. Live out your salvation. Notice how this starts in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, so then. So then. It's it's a key, obviously, that he's already said something that has led up to the beginning of verse 12. And what verse 12 uh, says, so then, is a reference to the... The text that we actually looked at last week and last week was a critical text in the in the whole argument that Paul makes, because what he has done already in chapter two, if you were not here last Sunday, was he's elevated Christ as the ultimate example in this beautiful hymn of Christ. It's called the Christ hymn and the opening part of chapter two. And so just let me hit the high points. Go back with me to Philippians chapter two and verse three. Philippians 2, 3, flip back there if you would and notice uh, he says t- t- earlier in the chapter, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So then that that helps us to arrive at at verse 12, the opening phrase where he says, so then, my beloved, with the idea in mind that Christ has been Obedient to the Father in verse 8. Think about it. Jesus was obedient to his own Father to the death. And again, he's the ultimate example. So if we're going to live out our Christian life, we have to first be like Jesus. We have to be obedient, obedient to God's word. And he puts it just a critical The critical emphasis is on obedience, to live out our faith. And he says, do it in my absence even more than in my presence. So part of what we need to be doing in order to work out our salvation is having a 24-7 commitment 
You need to be the same person everywhere you go, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, not somebody here. And then in, my, in the absence of spiritual leadership, you become a different person. You're not a, a lizard that changes colors wherever you go, becoming more like the, you know, the, the surrounding elements around you. You're a follower of Christ. And so we're to live out our faith by uh, having a passion for obedience to God more than just obedience to spiritual leaders. The mark of spiritual maturity is obedience in the absence of other people around you. If you only obey when you're in the presence of your spiritual leaders and you, your life falls apart when your spiritual leaders are absent, then you, you today are being called to the next level of Christian maturity. And let me add this to parents and grandparents, because I know many of you are grandparents. You cannot undervalue the significance of your influence on your grandchildren and your children that comes simply by applying the scriptures 24-7 and living out the Christian life when you're not at church. You must be the same person when you go home that you are at church or else your kids are immediately going to sense hypocrisy and that is going to be the number one reason they're going to want to bail out of the Christian life because it's not real to you. So you've got to figure out how to live out the Christian life and work out your salvation by applying the Bible to real life situations and call it out. Say, I'm going to do this because the scriptures teach this. And don't compartmentalize your life where you don't have the truth of the scriptures being relevant to your day to day decisions. So as grandparents, many of you can don't dismiss this as something that's no longer part of your responsibility. And obviously to parents is critical. And we ought to do it with fear and trembling, he says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? It means we need to have a healthy respect for the fact that even if we're not around other people or spiritual leaders, even in the absence of those people, God is still obviously keenly aware of our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our motives. And he wants to remind us here that we will give an account, even as followers of Christ, for our stewardship of our life. We're going to stand before the Lord Jesus at the Bema seat and give an account for our desire to live and be faithful to the salvation he's given us. It's not, an, it's not a judgment for salvation, but it is, an, it is an, an, a judgment for the investment we put back into the kingdom of God. And we need to have a fear and trembling about that. And so we have this idea that God is still... Not somebody to bring down to our level and become buddy-buddy with, but he's to be feared and to be respected and to be held in awe. And so in, in that light, he says also that God, um, he comes to us in spite of our weakness and in spite of our imperfection, and he works in our life. Look at verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that, that should create a sense of fear and trembling. What I'm telling you is today, in this moment, 
The God who created all of the stars, all of the earth, all of creation on the earth and all people who have ever lived. He's speaking to you today. And he is calling you to conform your life to the image of Christ. And he is working in you right now for his will and for his good pleasure. And that is both a a sense that ought to cause us to fear and tremble a little bit. But it also ought to cause us to have a sense of of a wow factor. We ought to go, wow. What is it? What does it say when somebody calls you up on the phone and says, hey, I just want to um, encourage you. I just want to tell you something that I feel like you need to hear in order to be a better Christian. I want to speak into your life. I'm going to take time to invest in you. Anytime somebody invests in you, you appreciate the, 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 their investment in you because it makes a statement about their love for you. When God invests in you, he is making a statement that you are a person of incalculable value. God has got a lot invested in you. When you came to Christ, you came at the high cost, the immense cost of the blood of his son, Jesus. He has no intention of just letting you go and do whatever you want. And the fact that he would not let you go, but cling to you and shape you and to work in you and to energize you, it says he loves you. If he didn't love you, he would let you go. Off on your way and be destroyed in your life. But God is working in you. And he's working in you for his purposes. You're bought at a price to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is absolutely his glory. And I thank God that he's never so busy that he doesn't have time for us. He's the master artist. Your life is a canvas. Day by day, he's making another Stripe on your life to turn you into a master, um, a masterpiece. And it's a mysterious power that's working in you, isn't it not? Can you sense it in your own life at this moment? We can't see it. The world thinks we're nuts. It's invisible. It makes no sound. And it's the voice of God in our life. It's the power of God. It's present and it's real, but we can't explain it. Noel and I have been um, trying to begin to look kind of for the future without our sons and, you know, what's that going to look like. And I told Noel, I said, I really want you to start riding bikes with me because I've gotten where I, I like to ride bikes for exercise. And so I said, I want, you know, if you could learn to ride bikes with me, then we could we could go to places together for, for recreation, but also for exercise and for working out. And so I've been encouraging her to to get a bike. We went, so we went to the bike shop, and um, I, I had already known some of these guys, and I was just talking to them, trying to witness to them, to be honest with you. But um, I went in there with Noel one day, and, I, and he said, "Hey, I've got these new electric bikes, and they've got electric motor on them." 
And he said, if you'll if you'll take one for a test drive and Noella take one for a test drive, I'll give you a chance to pull from um, like a raffle thing and you get a free accessory like a water bottle or a little bag or something like that to put on your bike. It was free. Now all you got to do is go for a test drive. And he said, are you willing to do it? I said, look, I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. I'll do anything if, you know, that's free. You know, I'll get in anything that's free. I'm going to get it. So we took these bikes to a parking lot across, across the street to a parking lot. And the way these things work, he, and this is what he said to me. He said, here's the key. You have to be pedaling or it won't do anything. But once you start pedaling, then you can take this little switch on your thumb. And if you will just push it in a little bit, the electric motor will, come, will kick in and it will give you extra power. And so... Like going downhill, you can just kind of coast, but when it's you know time to go uphill, just kick in a little bit of that power, and you'll feel the, the electric motors helping you get up that hill. But the key is you got to be pedaling. And so we're going around, and the, the parking lot was slanted, so half the time you're going downhill and half the time you're going up. So going up, you can just kind of engage that little electric motor, and you're just kind of gliding like that. And you feel like you're working out. But you're getting absolutely no exercise value whatsoever. I mean, my heart rate is probably more just holding the bike than it was riding the bike. And I thought that's a good illustration of the power of God that works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. You've got to be pedaling. You've got to join God at work with you. You've got to come along with God at what he's trying to do in your life and quit resisting it and submit your will to the lordship of Christ and engage the power of God in your life, and He'll power you up hills that you can't climb on your own. And at the deepest level of your heart, you know that right now. You feel it, that God is speaking to you about what He wants you to do in your life, and He wants to will and work for His own good pleasure to take you to the next level of your faith so that you're not a selfish person, that you're not self-centered, but you're Christ-like, that people see Christ in you, Because you're different than you used to be. You're transformed into the image of Christ. You're not staying the same, but you're becoming a better follower of Christ. And the result is the greater exaltation of God that he receives the glory for. That's what it means to live out your faith. And that's what it means to keep a church from unraveling like this church did in Philippi over things that are just simply unimportant because we're too selfish and self-centered To not see the big picture. And the result is the loss of witness. I mean, the the, the church here at Philippi was losing their light. And Paul told them the light of the church is being dimmed. So you got to shine out. The second way we got to exercise our faith and work out our salvation is to shine out according to the scriptures. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. This is an arresting verse. This is a verse that kind of hits me and it ought to hit us all like somebody grabbing us, like an aircraft carrier jet landing, and all of a sudden the, the, the cable grabs you because it says that we are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
And what's even more startling and arresting, you know, that grabs us and stops us and it checks our thought pattern is that we realize that this is directly connected to verse 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. The word blameless is a word that means pure. And it was uh, a term for metals, working with metals in that first century church. Metallurgy, the the study of processes that will purify metals. That pure word, what they were saying is that if you take this metal sword and you purify it and you put it through the right processes, then it will be pure so that it is strengthened and able to be a more effective weapon. That's the picture of this word blameless. And it's connected with grumbling and connected with disputing. And it speaks... To us here, and then Paul connects this grumbling to an Old Testament example, and he was speaking of, he saying, you've got to be lights to a perverse generation, talking about lost people. They're crooked and perverse, and we've got to be a witness to them, and he uses terminology that was, for them, clear, because it was part of their scriptures, which was Deuteronomy. In the reference back in Deuteronomy 32, 5, to the, in the Song of Moses, where Moses called the generation that failed to witness a, a crooked and perverse generation. And it was a clear reference back to this, this story of that first post-Egyptian, post-Exodus generation that, that came out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery, which is a picture of salvation. And those people back in the book of Exodus refused to appreciate their salvation and instead began to exercise uh, grumbling. And Moses later called them a crooked and perverse generation. And so if you just listen to some of these verses from Exodus, Exodus fifteen twenty four. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Exodus 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out to this wilderness to kill this whole assembly. It seemed that they had forgotten the very few years before when they were crying out to God for salvation. Exodus 16, verse 7, it says, For he hears your grumbling against the Lord, Moses said. Verse 8, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat and bread to the full, for the Lord hears your grumblings. Again, this repetition of grumblings. Anytime in Scripture you see a word used over and over, it's for effect and it's to drive home the, the seriousness of this. The repeated use here is saying that the severity that God interprets our grumbling and complaining about life and how it affects our own witness. I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. So grumbling is discontentment. It's when we say to God, God, I'm discontented in life with your provision, with your salvation, with your coming through for me. And it's the loss of the big picture of of eternity. And it's really a sense of I've lost trust in your goodness, God. I really don't trust anymore that you're a good God. 
Grumbling is looking at life in a negative way. If you're a negative person, you need to guard your heart against grumbling. We need to have a positive outlook in life. Spend two weeks in uh, any short-term mission trip in a third world nation. It'll radically change your, the way you look at God's provision in your life. And Paul links grumbling with disputes. He says they were grumbling, they were discontented, and they were, it was this low-level complaining, grumbling, you know, sort of not a, not a vocal, just a, 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 like that cartoon character that used to grumble under his breath. That's grumbling. And he links it with um, a lack of purity. And it's also connected with not remembering our salvation and it's connected with being self-centered. And the general effect was on the church was that the church was losing its witness. And he was coming to them saying that we need to understand what you're really saying is come to Christ. It's great, even if we don't believe it is. And it was and in that that witness was killing the church's ability to share the gospel with other people. And it's true for us as individuals. There's an attraction to positivity. And the converse is true. And like Israel, the church here had lost its witness. They were not a light to the nations. And Paul is telling them, you are being called to appear as lights. And that word is stars in the, in the Greek. He said, you're, you're stars to these lost people. And Stars has the implication in the first century church of being used at night to be able to travel at night as a navigation aid. They needed the stars to know where to go. And he's saying you're a way to show people to how to get home. You are the source of stars. You're a star at night that's a navigational aid for the lost people. And we're to be like that. And he says the way to do that is to hold on to the word of life. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life. And that specifically is talking about the gospel and generally talking about all of the Bible as a whole. But specifically, Paul was reminding them of their salvation, what God had done for them, and reminding them of their responsibilities to be little Christ. And to hold fast onto that and hold fast onto the scriptures to be light to the world. And the lost, he said, needs you. Folks, I got something to tell you. This city needs Ridgecrest Baptist Church to be a church for others. They don't need us to be a church complaining. They need us to be a church proclaiming. We're a city set on a hill. Jesus said, you're the light to the world. You're a city set on the hill. And we can't but help understanding the, the, the name Ridgecrest to cause us to be that way, to be a light on a hill. To be a city of God set on a hill. And if we're a, if we're a church that's more focused inside on our own needs and our own desires, we're never going to be the church that God is calling us to be, to be the church for others. Are we praying and striving to be Christ-like, to regard others as more important than ourselves, to have a general outlook in life for the majority of our time The majority of our way of looking is to to regard people outside of our family as well as our family, but especially in the church as people that God wants us to serve and elevate them as more important than our own selves. 
Or do we bring a half-hearted complacency to church? Do we focus on ourselves and our families and getting what we want? Let's make a fresh commitment today to be followers of Christ and to be people that are marked by being about other people. Let's be the church for others before ourselves. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.